Good afternoon, church. I think it would be good to pray again before we start the sermon. Heavenly Father, God, life moves very fast, Father. There's always a lot uh, happening, Father. We live in a society that, Father, it really is a 24-7 society, Father. Um, You know, we're bombarded. I bet, (laughs) I won't even encourage us to do this, Father, but I bet if uh, we checked our mobile phones, we probably had countless emails, even during the service today, Father. I know that uh, Scott uh, definitely has. He's probably had 500 in the last half hour, Father. But, you know, this is the world we live in, Father. We are bombarded on all sides, God. And... Father, it's very hard, actually, to even have a a sense of uh, looking forward, to actually plan and have any kind of sense of direction. It's so easy to be caught up in the moment and to be, you know, to let time pass us by, Father, to have no uh, direction, no clear purpose to our lives, Father, to just literally go from one uh, moment to another one, uh, crisis to another one, uh, email to another, Father. You know, this is the world we live in, Father. It is even harder to actually look back, Father, at history. God, and to be able to think and and to be able to take time to learn from the past, God. And Father, this has been quite a a sobering week, really, in in the world, you know, in world politics, Father. There's been a lot going on, Father, in the world. And and so many lessons, Father, which I think, you know, we maybe have forgotten, our generation has forgotten from 50, 60, 70 years ago, Father. When we think back about the the war in particular, Father, and the kind of racism that precipitated that God. And and this is the world, Father, we are living in, God. And we have people who now think it's perfectly acceptable, Father, to, you know, uh, judge people by the colour of their skin again, Father, or by the language that they hear them speaking, God. Father, this is the world we live in, God. And it is good for us to remember, Father, that, you know, we live in in a free society, Father, here really in the West, God. Because of people's sacrifice, God. Because many, many people, uh, and, and probably for a lot of us family members, you know, grandparents or, or closer family relatives went to fight in battles, God, that, you know, we, we've never had to live through, God. We, we've never spent a Christmas day in the trenches, Father. We've never had our feet in boots that were so wet, Father, that the skin was falling off of our feet and our feet were rotten, God. I mean, this is the horrific reality, Father, that many, many, many people lived through God, or the fear of waking up in the night, God, and hearing those bombs falling, you know, the the sound of the the bomb coming overhead, and then the sound when it stopped, and you're knowing that you had moments to get to the air raid shelter or something, God. I mean, this is, this is the reality, Father, of the, you know, our past in this country, Father. God, help us remember that, Father. Help us be grateful, God, for that, but also, Father, in Jesus, help us live like Paul says, Father, help us live lives worthy of the calling we've received. God, we've received this amazing calling, Father. You know, in some ways we should be forever grateful, God, for the people who sacrificed their lives for us in the wars. Father, but we have someone greater who sacrificed his life for us, God. We have a higher purpose and calling, God. I pray, Father, that we can put everything else aside, Father, and focus on your word and see Jesus a little more clearly, Father, today than we did before. And it will change our lives as a result. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me ask you a question. Where's the, uh, there you go. What's the best sandwich? What's the best sandwich you've ever eaten? Say again. Cream. Some people are going to be taking notes now. Cream crackers. 
Sorry, what? Cream crackers and jam. Bev, wow, okay, alright. What? Go on, Tim. A BLT, yeah, BLT, I, I, cream crackers and jam. Okay, I, I, maybe we'll try that one. All right. Someone else had their hand up. Uh, Roland, go on. Oh, that's, yeah, I, I could go for that, yeah. Is it a sandwich though? It's a cake. Definitions matter. <laughs> See, you're missing your five a day. Yeah. A Big Mac, yeah, it's kind of a sandwich, it'll do. American sandwich. One more, one more, one more. A KFC snack wrap, it'll do, yeah, it's almost a sandwich, yeah, we go. Sandwiches are funny things, aren't they? Like, I, 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 in my, this was a foolish move that I will never do again, I don't think, probably. I, I work in a building and they have a, a, a Starbucks coffee shop at the, you know, on the ground floor, and Starbucks coffee, you know, it's, it's quite expensive and it's not great coffee, but it's, it's there. But they do these sandwiches, and I was running from one meeting to another a couple of months ago, and um, I'd forgotten to bring food with me that day, and I went down and I saw this, it's a beef pastrami sandwich, and I kind of thought, but it was in a, a concealed wrapper. So you couldn't see what was in it, but I thought, beef pastrami sandwich, it sounds quite healthy, da da da, you know, there were some other ones there with loads of cheese, I kind of thought, you know, this sounds quite healthy. So I got this thing and opened it up, expecting, and, and literally it was, like imagine the sandwich was this big, like 90% of that was just bread. And there was one slice, I think, of pastrami in the middle. I was kind of like, wow. And it cost me like four quid or something, I thought. Wow. Someone's making a lot of money off of my foolishness. So, But anyway, I, I want us to talk today about a, a sandwich in the book of Mark. Did you know that there are nine sandwiches in the book of Mark? We're, we're going to talk about one of them today. Um, do you know I'm going to move this thing back. I feel like it's going to hit me in the face. You know, up until fairly recently, actually, a lot of scholarship on Mark kind of dismissed Mark. Like, it was actually quite sort of patronizing, but, you know, kind of said, Mark's Gospel of the four Gospels is the worst written. There's not an awful lot in there, and, and, th- and there were reasons for that. There was a particular strand of approaches in, you know, academic study that dominated up until recently called textual criticism. And it basically meant that, that when they looked at Mark, they kind of said, the Greek isn't that good, and you know, some of the tenses are a bit off, and all this kind of stuff. And, and so it was kind of dismissed for various reasons. But over recent years, they've started to look at Mark and said, actually, there's some really clever things that Mark does with his gospel that some of the other gospel writers don't necessarily do. And one of them is this technique. It's called a Mark and Sandwich. We're going to have a look at one of them today. And basically, it's where Mark takes two passages... And he sandwiches them together. So he'll start with passage A. And there's something going on in passage A. And then he'll switch to something else. And then he'll come back to passage A. And by putting it all together, the second passage, passage B, if you like, is meant to help and add greater clarity and depth to the things around it, to the passages A. And you you can have a look, you know, can go and have a look after this for the other eight of these. But we'll have a look at one of them today. Turn with me to Mark Chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman who was 
sorry, who was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around you, his disciple answered. And yet you can ask, Who touched you? But Jesus kept looking around him to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid. Just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, John, uh, the brother of James. And When they came to the house of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he had put them outside, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went into where the girl, where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this They were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. So here's this sandwich in Mark. And the parallels now that you're looking for them, they're pretty clear, right? So there's this girl who we find out later in the story is 12 years old. And the woman who has been suffering, well, she's been suffering for 12 years. There's also parallels with the impurity, right? On the one hand, Jesus is going to deal with a situation with a girl who is dying and then actually ends up dead. So, you know, in Jewish customs and Jewish law, that's an impure situation. On the other hand, this woman, we'll come back to that in a minute, she has a, a chronic bodily discharge. Again, in Jewish law, impurity. You know, Jairus, when he comes with his language, he says, come, save or rescue. The word there in Greek is, is, is rescue. Rescue my daughter. And the older woman says, if I just touch his cloak, I will be rescued. Or saved. And again, the language is obvious. Jairus goes and he says, My daughter. When Jesus is healing this woman, he calls her daughter as well. And to both of them, basically, Jesus is saying to Jairus, Don't be afraid, just believe. And to the woman, he says, Your faith has saved you. You know, it's an interesting turning point in Mark's gospel that begins just before this, where, where Mark's gospel turns from some of the persecution Jesus has been facing to this whole emphasis on faith. And overcoming fear and doubt and troubles. And so the title of the sermon is Don't Stop Believing. Sorry, I'm not going to sing that, that Glee song. You, I was going to put that on there. The, you know the, do you know the song, the, the Journey or the Glee song? I could get one of the teens to sing it later, but I'm not going to try it. Don't stop believing. That one. There we go. In my little falsetto voice. Anyway. Uh, putting that aside for a minute uh, let's, go. So, 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 let's, let's, let's try and focus on these guys and forget my terrible singing for a minute or two so, so let's just think about Jairus for a minute 
Now, a lot of people say when you, when you try and when you read the Gospels in particular, one of the best ways to, to interpret them, to understand what's going on, is to try and put yourself there, you know, in the crowd. Imagine uh, Jairus' situation for a minute. So it says he's the ruler of the synagogue. What do we know about him? Well, he's the ruler of the synagogue. That sounds like this really prestigious title. It's actually kind of not you know, in, in smaller communities where they had a synagogue like this. It was a bit like the kind of caretaker for the temple, if you like. Like he would go around, he would organize things like the services, etc. It was a title, didn't carry much prestige with it. But the chances are that he probably wanted to avoid some of the controversy that was starting to spring up around Jesus. You know, he's a reputable figure in a sense, not as high up as a kind of elder or someone or a priest, if you like, but, but you know, he's, he's in charge of certain things. He's a respected figure. You might think of him like a, a bit like a deacon or something like that. And, and, you know, around about this time, as you see from Mark a little bit earlier on, there's, there's a lot of controversy that's starting to spring up around Jesus. Who is this guy? What's he teaching? You know, he's claiming this authority to forgive people's sins, etc. So you can imagine Jairus, in his position, not wanting to, to get too entangled with Jesus. We also know this. It says that his daughter was on the point of death. Now it doesn't tell us exactly what had happened to her. So, so, so we, you know, this might have been 12 years, we're not told, it might have been 12 years of sickness. She had always been ill and he'd had to live with that and her kind of frailty and things. If you've seen the, the film The Miracle Maker, that's how it's kind of interpreted there. We don't know. You know, I've heard other interpretations that say that, you know, he was maybe at work and heard your daughter, you know, she's, she's ill. And, and, and had rushed home, and this was a kind of a, a quick sickness, a sudden sickness, if you like. But either way, what we know is that she is on the point of death. This is a desperate situation for him. You know, if, for those of us who have kids, imagine watching one of your children and knowing that nothing can help her now. There's nothing. There's, the, the, you know, there are no answers. And I imagine for Jairus, for someone in his position, like it was that desperation that drove him to Jesus. I... A kind of a last resort. What am I going to do? I've heard about this guy Jesus. I've heard, put aside the controversy, I've heard that he can heal people. I'm going to go to him. And what, what will we go next? Well, it, how did he approach Jesus? It says he threw himself on the floor at Jesus' feet. I mean, this, you know, in any culture, but particularly in Jewish culture, for a man to, to do that is incredibly undignified. So he, he embarrasses himself. He throws himself down. You can imagine other people in the crowd murmuring. Jairus doing like, you know, people kind of, you know, like as they do the crowd, you know, it's a bit, it's a bit much, isn't it? You know, what's the synagogue going to say on Sunday or Saturday? But Jairus says one, one simple thing. He says, "I believe, I believe, Jesus. If you come and you put your hands on my daughter, I know she will be well." That's enough for Jairus. At this stage, that's enough. He had a very simple faith to start with. He overcame religious and cultural obstacles. He was desperate. He was willing to humble himself. He had a simple belief. Now, it's interesting because later on in the Gospels, you know, we hear about the centurion who wasn't a Jew. Didn't know the scriptures quite the way maybe that that, that someone like Jairus did, but actually had a greater faith. He said, Jesus, you don't have to come with me. You don't have to touch my servant. Like, if you just say the word, I know he'll be well. So Jairus didn't have that kind of faith, but he had enough faith to get him there, to get him on his knees, to beg Jesus. <coughs> Sorry, that's six weeks of lecturing and my voice is going already. What about the woman? Oh, I'm going to have a drink. What do we know about the woman? 
which says she had a flow of blood. It's not very graphic, but we know something about what this flow of blood was about. This was basically a permanent menstrual problem. Most people interpret it like that. The wording in the Greek suggests that. What else do we know about? So she's she, she had this permanent menstrual problem going on for 12 years. We'll come back to that in a minute. What else does it tell us? It tells us that she had seen many doctors. So she'd been many, many times to see many, many people. She had spent, it says, everything that she had. And what was the result? I've got a slide there. What was the result? Nothing. I mean, actually, not just nothing, but she had gotten worse. She had gotten worse. She had spent everything that she had and had only gotten worse. And, and you can imagine, after 12 years of trying, how disillusioned she would have felt. How hopeless she would have felt. Not only that, not only, only the disillusionment, she was also unclean. Like in Jewish society, this kind of thing, there are particular laws in Leviticus that were very clear. A woman during her time of the month is ceremonially unclean. Everything that she touches becomes unclean. Everything that she sits on, all the clothes that she wears, becomes unclean in Jewish law. Whatever we think about that nowadays, those were the laws that were given that would have applied to her. Not only that, anyone that she touches... Anyone she has physical contact with, I'm not just talking about you know, sexual relationship with, but, but physical contact with, becomes ceremonially unclean. And you've got to imagine that. For 12 years, this is what this woman had lived with. Probably, anyone who knew about it would have avoided touching her at all costs. If she had been married, the chances are her husband would probably have left her. The chances are her family would probably have disowned her as well. Now, I'm not a, a doctor like uh, Rory, but uh, you know, a lot of uh, uh, accounts that I've read term this an obstetric fistula. And if that's what she had had, this permanent flow of blood, then it would have been impossible for her to conceive as well. So, it, you know, in any society, that, but in Jewish society at the time, to be barren, to be without child and possibly without husband, would have brought a lot of shame with it as well and not only that she could never enter the temple she could never enter the holy places i mean you know for a woman in jewish society at the time they could enter the outer courts not the inner ones but the outer courts but not her because she had this permanent flow of blood she wouldn't have even been allowed to approach anywhere close to god if you like certainly in in society this is the woman. But she had this simple faith. She said, if I just touch, if I just touch Jesus' cloak, I believe I can be well. And you know, Mark is using this woman. He's using this woman, on the one hand, this situation to help Jairus. Actually, we'll come back to that in a minute. He's using it to help Jairus to have a greater faith, and we'll come back to that. But also to help us, because you know, if you compare those two figures... Actually, the woman has the greater faith. She has greater faith than, than Jairus. She's had to fight through this crowd. Not only that, when, and you can imagine, those who knew her fighting through this crowd would have stepped back and recoiled and things. But not only that, when, when Jesus turns around and says, you know, who touched me? You can imagine, and we don't know exactly, we're not told exactly, did people stand back from her knowing, you know, oh, 
whoa, whoa, this is her. Could she have possibly, which, you know, which would have made it harder for her to escape. Or possibly, actually she was able to, not, not like this, but actually she was able to kind of, she could have disappeared back into the crowd. We don't know exactly. But Jesus kept asking this question, who, who, who touched me? And what do we know about the woman? It says that she came before Jesus. She fell at his feet. It says, verse 33, trembling with fear. And what did she do? She told Jesus the whole truth. You can imagine her telling him this 12-year history of her life. The desperation that she had felt. But she was trembling with fear. And, and, And why? Well... For her to touch any man would have made him unclean. To touch a rabbi, she had made Jesus unclean. And you can imagine the disgust in the crowd. You can imagine people, this is not just, you know, the kind of the gyrus falling on his knees. I imagine that people around them would have been, would have physically, you know, felt disgust. And maybe the things that they would have said, you know, what is this rabbi going to do? What about this woman? What is this rabbi going to do? And turn you to Jesus to see his response. We'll come back to that as well. But she overcame. What does her faith look like? She overcame a lot of stigmas. And she also overcame repeated failures. Didn't she? Like for a woman to even have enough faith at this point to believe. If I just touch Jesus after 12 years of trying and facing nothing but failures. That's a pretty amazing faith. I'm pretty challenged and inspired by her faith let's go back to Jairus because the story does so we go back to Jairus Jesus has just healed this woman he said to her daughter your faith has made you well and then Jairus hears news now you don't capture it quite in the English but in the Greek the first word that these people said probably <clears throat> when they came to Jairus was dead dead is your daughter like they really the Greek emphasizes it you know dead is your daughter Hope is gone. Don't bother the teacher anymore. You've got to put yourself in Jairus' situation. He had this, this, this inkling, this modicum of faith. If Jesus comes with me, he can sort this out. But you can imagine, I think Jairus, at that point, how would I feel? I think my first reaction, to be honest, would be anger. At this woman. Because I would have kind of felt like we were pretty close. And if this woman hadn't interfered... If she hadn't stopped Jesus, and if she hadn't taken this long time to explain to Jesus, then then we could have made it. I think I would have felt anger. But then I think after that, Jairus, what's he feeling? He's feeling despair. Like he had this little ray of hope. His daughter was alive, and while his daughter was alive, he thought, Jesus can solve this problem. But now she's dead. My hope is gone. And you know, it's funny, Mark's saying to us, at that point... At that very moment, right there, she, sorry, he is feeling what this woman had been feeling for 12 years. At that point, that point of hopelessness, he is feeling what she had been feeling for many years. And Mark wants us to interpret those two passages together, you know. It's like Jesus is saying, look, one daughter here has just been healed. Jairus, have faith that yours can be too. You know, the facts and the failures that the woman had faced. The fact that no one had been able to solve this. But Jesus could. Was meant to help Jairus as well. You know, Jairus' faith was fading. And Jesus is saying to him, hold on. 
Isn't it? Isn't, isn't faith like that sometimes? Like you start with a little bit of faith and you kind of think, and, and then it gets tested and you kind of think, man, I can't, you know, whoa, I, you know, I had a bit of faith to start with, but, but now you're asking to have more faith, you know? But it's interesting, I think, what Jesus is saying to him. Because you can imagine Jairus' friends are coming saying, give up, lose hope. The people in the crowd around him, you can imagine them kind of, oh man, you know, we knew Jairus is, oh, it's too bad. Later, as he gets to the house, there are people weeping and wailing. And you can imagine Jairus feeling like, you know, it's so easy to follow the crowd, to lose faith, because people around you have lost faith. But Jesus is saying to him, keep your eyes on me, Jairus. Keep your eyes on me. Don't look at anyone else. Don't listen to the people wailing and crying. Keep your eyes on me. Don't stop believing. And you can think of the song again. I'm not going to sing it this time. I think there are three lessons that we pick up from passages about faith. Number one. I think there's a faith here that cares. I think, if you think about it, Jairus' faith wasn't for himself. His faith was for someone else. His faith drove him, and it was accompanied by, by care, by compassion for his daughter. You know, when he threw himself on the floor, when he begged, when he overcame ridicule, when he persevered in the end... It, it, it was out of compassion as well. It was out of care. It was a faith that cared. And I think, you know, there's a parallel for us. I think that this is the kind of faith that we need to have for friends, family members, workmates, children, colleagues. Isn't that the kind of faith that we need to have? You know, it's kind of good in some ways that the students aren't here today, or most of them aren't, and things, but, you know, we can talk to them, but, you know, it's kind of like a, we can just have a little group for us today. Because the truth is, you know, in some ways... You know, life is a little bit easier to, to reach out and share your faith when you're a kind of a younger, single student on campus and you've got all the time in the world. And it's funny because I teach students all the time and you would not believe how they, they feel. Sorry, guys, sorry. But, but they feel like life, is, like life is so hard for them. Oh, no. It's traumatic. I, I got four essays to hand in on a day. Help me. You know, and I kind of, you know, um, sorry, I'm a university lecturer for those who don't know. But, you know, and, 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 and there's part of me that kind of, I, I have to, I have, but otherwise I get, rid, I, I get sarcastic. I, kind of, I have to go, okay, when I was in your situation as a second and third year, I felt exactly the same. I, I, I do understand. I say to them, most of the time I say, you know what, life is going to get a lot more complicated the older you get, you know. <laughs> and I try and not kind of offload, because I could do that, I could use that as a therapy session. I could go, let me tell you, let me tell you. But I try not to. I have done once or twice. It doesn't go down very well because they just kind of look at me like... It doesn't even compute when I say to them, you wait till the, your daughter's dog is waking you up at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock in the morning and then you have to walk the dog at 6 o'clock. And, you know, all this stuff. And they kind of look at me like, dog, daughter, what, you know? It's just, it's a millennia away from them right now. They just can't get their heads around it. Okay, so anyway. But, but, but life is simpler. This is a good tip for you guys. Life is simpler. It's nice that you're sitting over there so I can point over it. But, but life is simpler when you're younger. Make use of it. Evangelism, sharing your faith with friends, having faith for colleagues and workmates and things, it gets more and more complicated the more older you get. I think, and this is my opinion, and please don't take this as a criticism, but I think historically, as a church, as a movement, We've tended to rely too much on the campus, etc., and younger people 
to, to kind of bring new faces along and baptize new people and things. And I don't think, to be honest, this is my opinion, this is not meant to be a criticism, but I don't think we've ever really figured out how to have healthy, consistent growth, you know, amongst the, the kind of married family groups and things. Which I kind of think about that, and, 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 and I have the same struggles too, I'll tell you about that in a minute, but, but I kind of think of that, and I look at that, and I kind of think, well, that's, that, that shouldn't be the way, because actually, the more mature you get, the more experience you have of life, actually, the more friendships you have, the more contact you have, you tend to live, you know, as you're a student, you tend to move house all the time, blah, 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 blah. The relationships you have tend to be very kind of short term, because of that, which is great if you share your faith with someone they're not interested next year in a new house with new flatmates, etc. But when you're in an area for 10, 15, 20 years, actually that should work to our advantage, shouldn't it? I think, and this is, a, this is not a criticism directed, but, but I think the challenge with that, with living in a period of, with living in a place or working in a workplace for a given period of time, is actually to maintain a radical, perseverant kind of faith for people. Isn't it? Like if I think back, you know, when I first moved down to Birmingham, and that's only three years ago, I went down to loads of my colleagues in one workplace, and I kind of shared my faith with them, do you want to come to this, da-da-da-da-da, and, and, and most of them said no, and very few of them actually wouldn't even have a conversation about it. And, and I remember praying about them at the time, and kind of thinking, yeah, yeah, I need to keep praying for them, maybe they'll, you know, and then life gets busy, and you kind of move on to other things, and then, and then very quickly, I was just kind of like, wow, even this week, because of a few situations going on in life, I, I, kind of, I, I was like, wow, I, I've not really been praying for my colleagues and reaching out consistently to my colleagues. And I know, I mean, a tragic situation at home, uh, uh, in my university with two colleagues who are married and they have young kids similar age to us and no one saw it coming, but they had a divorce this summer and I'd reached out to the guy before and regularly reached out to the woman. And it, and it just kind of it reminded me, I kind of thought, wow, you know, I've got I to keep persevering. We've got to stay radical. We've got to keep sharing our faith with people. You know, and I started praying about that again this week, partly prompted by the sermon, but partly just prompted by, by a few other situations going on at work and other things. And it's funny how when you start praying about it and start focusing on it again, God opens doors. It is within the space of a week. You know, uh, uh, Forrest and I, were, we, our daughters go to the same ballet thing on, on a Friday afternoon. There's a guy that Forrest had reached out to the first time uh, he came to the ballet. It's not the dads doing the ballet, it's the kids doing the ballet. That would just look very odd. Sorry, just... The thought, thought of Forrest in a tutu, just... He's not here, is he? Sorry. Don't tell your dad I said that. Anyway, anyway, sorry. Sorry, sorry. I can't get that thought out of my head now. I'm scarred for life. Anyway. Anyway, Forrest reached out to this guy called Louis, who, who came to one of the ballet things. He's a hunk of a man. He's like six foot six or something like that. Very kind of gently spoken, nice guy. But it, he was there again for, uh, for the second time at ballet this week, and Forrest and I were sharing our faith with him. He's a great guy. He was like, oh yeah, I'll come along to the family group thing we do in uh, Selly Oak, the uh, uh, sports games night, whatever we're doing there. I took the chance, which scared the living daylights out of me, to uh, a photocopy. I was heading off to a lecture, and I, I do this sometimes and see, you know, see colleagues where I think, oh, I, I could have a conversation with this guy and but I was like oh, I've got 15 minutes I need to I think I need to get to the lecture and you know da, 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 da. and then I, this guy Chris was there at the photocopier and I thought oh, I'm, got, I'm trying to make you know I'm trying to repent right this week so I thought okay so God here we go so I went over and I sort of fumbled, fumbled and I uh, so Chris uh, yeah and I, but I shared my faith with him which was great because that's the first time I'd shared my faith with him and he we, you know I said oh let's come back to this conversation it was an interesting conversation and, and, and last weekend actually we had this uh, fireworks night in our neighbourhood which was great. We had 20 or so, 30 of the neighbours come down to that. And one of the families from that, that Raquel studying the Bible with the, the woman, 
and the husband came over for food yesterday. Great guy, uh, Kurdistani guy, I think, or Uzbekistan or something like that. You know, great guy and very, you know, smart but kind guy. We got together with them yesterday afternoon. It's funny how when you start focusing on it and thinking about it again, God opens doors. But I think there's a faith that cares, and you can all think about that. You know, it might be, it might be your kids. It might be your kids who have, you know, no longer come to church or are going through the difficult teens years, etc. At the moment. But a faith that cares, I think, is one of the things we see. Number two, a faith that dares. What about the woman? She took this huge risk. Isn't it funny? Faith always requires a risk. I mean, there's a really deep lesson in this for another time about the relationship here between faith and grace, right? Like, you know, faith and grace. Jesus is grace, the power going out from them, the healing power, that, that's the grace. But in both of these instances, it had to be combined with faith. And the faith had to, it was a risky faith. For the woman in particular, you know, faith is never a comfortable thing. I wish it was. I wish we could just see miracles happen all around us, just by kind of, you know, snapping our fingers and and having a smile on our face. But it doesn't happen that way. I think there are three lessons there. I mean, for, for, you know, for for her, it wasn't a blind faith, you think about it. Some people talk about, oh, you know, I can never have a blind faith. It wasn't a blind faith. She had heard about Jesus. She had seen, if you like, some evidence that Jesus did this kind of thing before. But she still had to take a risk. You know, all of the power was Jesus. Like none of this, I mean, you know, people get caught up in, oh, you know, grace and faith and this faith our works and all this kind of stuff. It's another topic for another day. But, but, but what did she do? I mean, nothing. She just reached out. All the power was Jesus. All the grace was from Jesus. But it took her faith. She had to reach out. Think of one thing at the moment in your life that you think God is calling you to take a risk in. In, in, you know, predominantly in the church. I'm sure there are life situations too, but think of in the church. You know, maybe, do you remember a couple of weeks ago we had that kind of new ministries thing and we were all, and we do those things at work and it's funny, everyone gets all excited. Yeah, join 50 groups. I'm going to sing. I'm going to join Martin's group and I'm going to be there. And then a week, couple of weeks later, it's kind of like, yeah, I'm quite busy actually. I'm, I don't think I'm going to make it to Martin's thing next week, or you know something like that. But, but it's a risk to join one of these groups and to commit to it. You know, did you commit to sing, to join the call to worship team? That might be a risk. I mean, it'd certainly be a risk for me. You've heard my voice, but 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 but, but that would be a, be a risk for them, not me. There we go. But think about that. Think about you know Martin was sharing about his his group, and maybe you're sitting there today, kind of thinking, Do you know what? I, you know, I have struggled with habitual sin or struggles or negative thoughts or depression or things like that. And but I, you know, maybe maybe no one knows about it. Maybe you've never shared that with someone, and you kind of feel like it would be a risk for me to go to Martin's group next is next weekend. Yeah, that would be a risk. That would be a risk. Maybe God's calling you there. You know. Kingdom Kids teaching, I'm sure, you know, Walter and Roberta would say it, you know, some of us sitting here, it would be great for us to volunteer, to teach or to be assistants in Kingdom Kids. Maybe you volunteered for that before. Maybe, that's a tip, by the way, you know, we're looking for some help in Bouncy Kangaroos, so you can come see me afterwards. I, I, you know, I, I know some of us are thinking about moving house over the next couple of months or couple of, or year or so. You know, that's a big step, isn't it? Now, to move house, particularly if it's a kind of a moving house, to an area to be closer to the Christians. I mean, when we were deciding to move to Birmingham, we were faithful with all sorts of choices about where we want to... Raquel found this place, the first place, because we didn't know Birmingham at all. And the first place Raquel found, and, and, and I, I was like, well, this is a great house. And it was in Maypole, I think it was, and it looked really nice. It was kind of... We'd just come back from Spain, right? 
And um, this house had been done up like a Spanish kind of, like, a, I don't know, whatever the place. And we, I was like, this looks great. This looks great, you know. Red tiled walls. I look back now and think, what are we, what are we talking about? Anyway, but at the time, I was kind of like, yeah, yeah, I could see this with the sunny warm weather in Birmingham. We'll have this great outdoor barbecue. And, but we, and then I called Scott. I remember our conversation. I was like, Scott, we found a house. Because I had no idea at the time where the disciples were living. So I said to Scott, I called Scott up, I said, Scott was super busy, I really appreciate him taking the call. I said, Scott, we found a house, it's, kind of, it's in Maypole. And he was like, where? And I said, Maypole, you know, are there any disciples that live near Maypole? And he said, I don't even know where Maypole is, but no is the answer. I was kind of like, right. Okay, so we scratched that one up. Because one of the things we wanted to do when we were choosing a house was to be close to disciples. Right? I've lived in situations both ways before, being close to disciples and being a million miles away from them. And I can tell you, from, you know, if you've ever never lived in that situation, choose the disciples. Choose living close to, to you know, hopefully stronger disciples, but, but, but choose the disciples. But that is a step of faith. And I know some of us are choosing and thinking about that at the moment. You know, some of us are thinking about becoming Christians. That's a step of faith as well. That's a letting go. That's a taking a risk. You know... Peer pressure. If you're choosing to become a Christian, it could be a family member that's holding you back or, or something like that, or your group of friends at school being in the in crowd. It's a risk. A faith that dares. And the final one, I think, is, is a faith that stares. A faith that, sta- a faith that stares. You know, I was praying through this passage a lot this week. And, and, and one of those times walking our dog very early in the morning. But... but, but I, 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 I was praying through, it's very easy, I think, when you study a passage like this, to look at Jairus, and, to, you know, and the preacher will do it. The preacher will go, oh yeah, look at Jairus, look at the woman, have faith like them. And I think we miss a trick if we do that, as the preacher and as, as, as congregation. Because they only had faith because their eyes were fixed on Jesus. Like if we're looking at Jairus and we're looking at the woman, which is great, but, but we're kind of missing what they were, they, were, they were looking at, what they had their eyes fixed on. And I was, I was, I was look, praying this week and thinking about, wow, you know, what, what do we see in Jesus? And I, I can tell you, I was genuinely, this, I think it was Wednesday night this week, I, I was genuinely speechless. Like, I really, like, I felt so humbled when I, when I thought about how Jesus behaves in this situation. You know, it reminded me of that passage in Mark 1, verse 40 to 42. We don't have to turn there. But it's when a leper, it says, I'll read it to you. It says, a leper came up to Jesus. He knelt down and begged him. If you want to, you can make me clean. And it says in the, the, it says Jesus was deeply moved to his core, in his gut. He reached out his hand and touched this leper and said to him, I do want to be clean. And I think, you know, I've always used that passage. I've said to people, Jesus is both willing and able. If Jesus was just able, but he really didn't care about people, this would be pointless. And if Jesus was very, you know, willing but wasn't able, then that would be pointless. He'd just be kind of like a nice kind of counsellor, but Jesus is both. Jesus is willing and he's able. Look at what he does. Jairus comes to him. And Jesus, without a question, goes with Jairus. Jairus comes falling on his knees. Jesus doesn't say a thing. He sees this desperate father and goes with him straight away. Later on when Jairus is lacking faith. He says to him. He put his hands on him and says. Don't stop believing. Keep having faith. He turns to this woman. The point I made before. And this woman. He could have ridiculed her. He could have had her stoned. 
for what she did. And what does he say? And I bet everyone in the crowd was shocked. He said, daughter, but he said, your faith has healed you. I remember Mark Templer making that point years ago, and it stunned me at the time. He could have said, my great power has healed you. But he didn't say that. He said, your faith. How humble, how how mind-blowing is that? That, for someone who likes to claim the credit for things, and kind of, you know, I like it when people say nice things about me. Jesus had the humility to say, your faith. Your faith healed you. And you know what? He didn't pull back from her uncleanness. I bet everyone, I bet everyone as they heard you, I bet if you were sitting there in the crowd, everyone else, when they're hearing about this woman, if they didn't know already, would have been pulling back. But Jesus didn't recoil. He took on her uncleanness and didn't pull back. When he reaches Jairus' house, what does he do? Again, oh yeah, gather all the crowds here. I'm going to show everybody a great miracle here. No, he says he sends the mourners out. He didn't want to make a spectacle. And when he'd done it, he said to them, don't tell anybody what I've done. He didn't want the kind of the acclaim and the glory for, for, for these kind of things. What did he say when the girl was healed? Feed her. He could have just kind of like, he could have been like, wow, you know, yes, thank you, thank you. Thank you and good night. Ta-da! I'm here all week, you know. Like, but he didn't. He thought about the girl. He said, feed her. And you know what? In the midst of all of that, that's the kindness part of Jesus. That's the willingness. But the power is, it's staggering. It's staggering. He raises a girl from the dead. Like, it's easy to miss that. In the, I mean, Jesus raises a girl from the dead. And this bleeding, and, and, and you know, we've all, I'm sure, been through long-term struggles with things. This should give us hope. The power Jesus has here is immense. No one else, no doctor, no physician had been able to help her, but Jesus did. The power is unbelievable. Literally unbelievable. You know, and I think, sometimes I think, I do this, we think, oh, the way to have great faith is to kind of muster it up like a balloon, like a hot air balloon. I've got to, got to find faith from somewhere. Yeah, I've got to be really faithful. Can you kind of get yourself all psyched up or say a really kind of great prayer and get yourself all kind of fired up or something? I think the great way to have faith, or the way to have great faith is to focus on, you know, on the person your faith is in. And that's Jesus. A faith that stares. You know, a story is told of a newcomer to Alaska who started to cross a frozen river. As he's walked along, he thought he heard a cracking sound and became terrified that the ice might break underneath him. He carefully lowered himself to distribute his weight more fully across the ice in the hope that it wouldn't give way. But the noise kept growing louder and louder and the terrified man cautiously crawled across the river. Louder and louder the sound grew and the man became frozen to the spot, unable to move out of fear. He was paralysed, convinced that he was about to die. And then all of a sudden, he looked up and saw a huge sledge approaching, being drawn by a whole team of horses. Now the ice was plenty strong enough to hold him, but it, you know, it, out of fear he became paralysed. And I think there's a parallel there for us as well. 
you know, sometimes in the Christian life we become paralyzed by fear. We don't want to take a risk because I think ultimately we've taken our eyes off of the Jesus who is willing and who is able. I want to show you a quick movie clip. I'm hoping this is going to work.
So in closing, I want to encourage us. No, don't play it again. Oh, there we go. Closing song. No, that one. There we go. I want to encourage us, encourage us as a church, you know, to don't stop believing or to not stop uh, believing. I want to encourage us as a church to have a faith that cares, a faith that dares, and a faith that stares. Amen. Amen.